Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in this series of A Year of Polygamy for the FMH podcast. Now, so far, I you've had to endure just me and my lonely voice, which I imagine is incredibly, incredibly boring. So thank you for doing that. And uh, luckily for me, nobody has complained about that yet. I don't know why. I think you guys are just being really nice to save my feelings because I listen back to these and I think that they're terribly dry. So I am bringing on some people to break up the conversation. I have a lot of um, experts that are lined up to talk about subjects, but I have a lot of um, in-between history lessons and issues that we need to talk about. So for that, I've brought on my good friend, Malia, who has been on other podcasts to help break it in, and I've made her promise to behave. Hello, Lindsay. I am promising to behave no matter how dry you are. Yes, so I brought her on to liven things up, but I told her to not liven it up too much as we were talking about a sensitive topic. And I won't. Good. It's already started and she's behaving. So this episode, we're going to talk about winter quarters and the trail. As you know, we just finished up with the wives of Joseph Smith. It was, um, a long series since there were, there's a lot of information thanks to, in part to the great work done by Todd Compton and Don Bradley and so many others that have gone before that have done this great, great work. And now we're going to move forward into the Utah period, which is the, which is something that if you grew up in Utah, like I did, you kind of always knew that you, that Mormons were polygamists. Brigham Young was a polygamist. It just wasn't a big deal, right? Yeah, I would say it was definitely um something that was uh uh it was almost like, oh, look at that thing that happened. Almost like it was a fun part of our history, don't you think? It was never something that was shameful. Oh yeah, I had my eighth birthday when I turned eight years old in the Lion House. We rented out a room and had a little tea party there and learned about some of the different wives of Brigham Young and it wasn't a it wasn't a big deal. But I hope this series is not going to be like that. We're going to try to really understand the practice because although we knew about this, I mean, unlike Joseph Smith's polygamy where a lot of people didn't know those stories, I think a lot of us know about the Utah period polygamy because we all have ancestors from this time. Many of us. Many of us do. If you grew up in Utah. I'm a very Utah-centric person. Um, But some people... um. I don't think everyone understands the context in which uh, it was practiced. So we're going to talk about everything from famous leaders to regular people to immigrants practicing it. And hopefully if we have time in the year, which I think we will move up into the current practice today to kind of understand why there are so many schisms, what happened with all the groups and things like that. So I hope you'll stay with us. We're going to start with winter quarters in the trail. So remember, Joseph Smith um, has now been martyred. He's been killed, and uh, as we talked about, the saints are in disarray. So, of course, they start coming over to Utah. Brigham Young's destination would end up being the Great Basin. We've talked about before how there were lots of um, options originally. They were talking about going to Mexico. They were talking about going up to Oregon. But uh, they decided on the Great Basin, and on August 9th, 1846, he assured President Polk 
that in their exile, the Mormons were embarked on a journey which, quote, a journey which we designed shall in a location west of the Rocky Mountains and within the basin of the Great Salt Lake or Bear River Valley as soon as circumstances shall permit, believing that to a point where a good living will require hard labor and consequently be coveted by no other people while it's surrounded by so unpopulous but a fertile a country, end quote. Okay, so he really thought that... uh that it was going to be a benefit that Salt Lake was so uninhabitable because I'm hearing like, you know, Mexico, which we know has um, a longer growing season and Oregon, which has very fertile, like they have a, a, you know, they, they farm pretty well, but they chose Utah because it was uninhabitable. Well, I mean, in a sense, Brigham Young was a very smart man in this. He was concerned about the, the real estate value. You know, Brigham Young was one of the first people that wanted to get the railroad here so there is this paradox with Brigham Young that he wanted to keep people out, but he also wanted to bring in commerce and that that sort of thing. And there was this huge romance at the time with what they called Upper California. And um, it's not what we believe California is today, but John Taylor even wrote a lively verse that went like this. The Upper California, oh, that's the land for me. It lies between the mountains and the Great Pacific Sea. So they thought that the Upper California meant the Rocky Mountains, and it was basically the Mexican territory until the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, who annexed it to the United States. And so Brigham Young probably anticipated the results of the Mexican War and informed uh, the U.S. President James K. Polk in the summer of 1846 that that they would be heading there. So he made a public statement about heading there. But of course, they had to get there first. And they started making arrangements to leave Nauvoo. And, you know, if you look at a map, and I'm going to post a map online, you can you can see their their path to Iowa. It would not be an easy path. Of course, we all hear about the stories over and over and over. Even if you're not from Utah, I imagine you hear stories of Pioneer Day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So historic, historian Richard Van Wagner writes that by the time they reached Sugar Creek, Iowa, people had lowered their guard and were discussing plural marriage more openly. Eliza R. Snow, who was now at this point married to Brigham Young instead of Joseph Smith, because, you know, we talked about Brigham marrying all of Joseph's wives, many of Joseph's wives. Um, Eliza wrote in her journal on February of 1846 that, quote, We felt as though we could breathe more freely and speak one with another upon those things wherein God had made us free with less carefulness than we had hitherto done, end quote. So it's becoming more open, and of course, more and more people are starting to practice it, so it's kind of hard to contain that um, secret of a thing. So does the general population, like uh, other people that are living in Nauvoo, do they know at this point that Mormons are practicing plural marriage? No, the general population does not know, and, and I'm going to talk more about that it's still, of course, they were inundated with rumors, but if you listen to the Nauvoo polygamy episode, you'll hear all the denials. Joseph Smith publicly over and over and over denounced it. He sent PR campaigns of people trying to, you know, quell this rumor. However, as soon as Brigham Young is starting to take over, he is practicing it rapidly. He has a whole horde of wives now, and a lot of the apostles do. And even some of the children of mothers that would be remarried as plural wives notice something is going on. Some of them know about it. Uh, some would write in their journals later on about their heartbroken mothers in Nauvoo. So we do know that um, it was starting to get out. Uh, Zina Young, 
who was also married to Joseph, was still legally married to Henry Jacobs, and she was visibly pregnant with Henry's child when she came across, and she wrote, quote, We there first saw who were the brave, the goods, the self-sacrificing. Here we had now openly the first examples of no- noble-minded, virtuous women bravely commencing to high to live in the newly revealed order of celestial marriage. Woman, this is my husband's wife. Here at length we could give this introduction without fear of rep- of reproach or violation of man-made laws, end quote. Yeah, so so when they arrived at Council Bluffs, they would both they would rest on both sides of the Missouri River. And if you look at a map, you can see Council Bluffs and you can see the Missouri River. This was an important time. Now on each side of the banks of the river were uh, Indian encampments. There was the Potawatomi's. Potawatomi's uh, were on the east side and the Omaha's were on the west. So the western encampment would officially become known as winter quarters, which we all hear about. Did you ever hear the stories of like the suffering? Remember the legacy movie there, winter quarters? This is like where. Oh yeah. Vaguely remember legacy. That was where she blessed, blessed a cow, right? That is in legacy. Yes. <laughs> no, truly. I, I mean, but I'm, I'm not even what you would call a casual, uh, um, partaker of Mormon history. So, um, this is not something I'm vaguely remembering it now from the legacy movie. I guess I sort of remember this, but no, I would guess that if you ask the average Mormon about this, m- most of them are going to be like, uh, me. Yeah. And so, so winter quarters, it's something that's talked about, um, often. And you can see it in the church movies where there was a lot of suffering in the winter. Um, it was kind of the resting place between Nauvoo and heading west. So on the west side of the banks is winter quarters, um, and it's near what is present-day Florence, Nebraska. So both both tribes living there were displaced as well, and so they found good company with the Mormons. Can I just say really quickly, the Mormons sure knew how to pick the ugliest, grossest land possible, like Nebraska, you know, Utah. Couldn't they go somewhere like Florida, you know? Well, to be fair... I don't think that that would have been a friendly place for them to go to either. So um, the Potawatomis were a nation from whom the United States had bought several hundred thousand, several hundred thousand acres of the finest lands from and were under a second sentence of transportation when the Mormons arrived there. And I'm sure they paid them well for it. <laughs> well, let's just say if you become a friend to Mormons, you're probably not a fan of the U.S. government. <laughs> So they liked the Mormons because they said that they didn't cheat on them or sell them whiskey or abuse them or, quote, try to bear themselves indecently towards their women. And this is, you know, a remark from Colonel Thomas L. Kane, who was cited in the book Among the Mormons, who became a friend of the Mormons. According to sources, many of the Indians made friends with the Mormons. They would have tea with them. They would learn to sing duets, and they really tried to make peace with them. The Omahas were said to be really poor, and uh, the Mormons helped them learn to store their maize. So that was another good partnership that they built there. And this would become important because the Mormons would have a long-lasting building relationship with with these uh, native people who, of course, they consider to be Lamanites. And Malia is a Lamanite. I am a Lamanite, and I can tell you that all this is true. <laughs> so, to many winter quarter, to many winter quarters was considered the Mormon camp of Israel. It was made on miles of rich prairie land, and it was enclosed and sowed with grain that they had saved. 
And there, you know, it wasn't terrible. Like, like my impression of winter quarters before I knew anything about it was it was just this terribly impoverished place. And while there was difficulty... Wait a second. Are you telling me that Legacy is not a historical film? Um, there is some history to be made there. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, there is a lot more to it than that. When they got to Winter Quarters, they started uh, building houses, stacks, and cattle shelters. And it was set to look like a tiny little county. So... In my mind, it was just this like very temporary stopping place that they stopped for the winter, but that's not what it was like. It became this little county. Um, there was said to be more than 700 houses in a single town, and it was neatly laid out with highways and byways and a stockade and blockhouse. So why didn't they just stay there? Well, because they're not on their land. They're in Indian territory, and of course... This would be Iowa. It would be way too close to where the government wanted them to be. Now, even in Utah, we find out that that was too close to where the government wanted them to be. But we'll get there. So they they even had a tabernacle of the congregation, according to Colonel Kane, and various large workshops and mills. They had factories that provided water power. So in spite of these provisions, which were nice, the food supply was sometimes insufficient. So I think that's where we get the stories of suffering. Many families survived on the charity of their neighbors. Um, Leonard Arrington claims that these survival techniques of sharing and establishing these groups were what helped establish the first wards that we know of. So we all have wards. Now Mormons have each have their ward. Well, this is the beginning of Mormon wards. Leonard Arrington says, quote, although the forced departure of the main body of the church from Illinois di- disrupted the congregational patterns, companies organized under a captain who was often a bishop were the standard administrative units during the trek west. At settlements like Winter Quarters and Council Bluffs, wards were organized in 1846, and once the saints had arrived in the Great Basin the following year, wards quickly became the church's primary building blocks, end quote. So aside from these family, aside from family, these wards would become the most important political unit and the most important social units as well. Would you say that wards are that way now the most important political unit? Um... Well, I think if we, the only thing that I can really speak to that I know of is kind of how the church treated Prop 8, right? And it seemed like a lot of that organization that they did to kind of combat Prop 8 in California started at the ward level, wouldn't you say? The way that they were like walking the doors and stuff, they split up their local neighborhoods according to ward. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think it can be used that way. I mean, at this time, I think it was much more political at the time because it was very much more concentrated. And small, and there was a, the, I mean, the, the political landscape was a lot different then. But yeah, so that's an interesting thing. And when I say bishop, you know, the captain of the ward was a bishop. You gotta understand, at this point, bishops are a lot different than we, than we understand now. Bishops were not functioning the same way that they are now. Um, how are they different? I'm just curious. Okay, so bishops, they just had different responsibilities. Um, there was 160 years of changing church needs. And so the bishops were said to be more concerned with the temporal needs of the church, whereas spiritual needs were mostly uh, fulfilled by the prophet. And uh, there were th- really three kinds of bishops that functioned. There were general bishops, ward bishops, and traveling or regional bishops. And I think in 1847, the first presiding bishop was called and was assigned to a church-wide temporal and administrative uh, project. 
ward bishops kind of worked under the supervision of this presiding bishop. And so these ward bishops would work under the presiding bishop and the regional bishops and the stake presidents. In the later 1800s, ward bishops were assigned a greater responsibility for the ward members, seeing to their spiritual needs as well as their temporal needs. But at first, you wouldn't really go to your bishop to like confess your sins. That was not something that, that was generally done. Before Nauvoo... Um, Joseph was said to have the office of the bishop restored in 1831. It's from DNC 41.9. Edward Edward Partridge, who was the father of some of Joseph Smith's wives, was called as the church's first bishop, and he was in charge of operating the, the first storehouse that helped the poor and kind of was involved with the transactions, and, and it was all connected with the law of consecration. And then Newell K. Whitney became the second bishop, and the two served as regional or traveling bishops. I think Whitney was over Ohio and the eastern states, and Partridge was for Missouri. And then they would have, like, first counselors, or sorry, they would have two counselors that would be assigned to them to help them. Um, bishop Partridge and Whitney kind of organized these priesthood quorums because by November 1831, the Lord had revealed the Aaronic Priesthood Organization, and designated bishops as the president of the Aaronic Priesthood to preside over these quorums. And there were 48 priests at the time, and I think that's in DNC 107. Partridge and Whitney would manage church temporal matters. They would pay the bills. They would buy and sell lands and goods. They would help with construction projects and printing and assisting the poor. And um, in Missouri, they... That's where they kind of consecrated all their belongings, all the saints did. And uh, Bishop Partridge signed the consecration deeds and received donations into a bishop's storehouse. So it was a it was a little bit different. And then by the time they come to Utah, ordained and acting bishops cared for the needy through tithes, offerings, and labor. So winter quarter was basically divided into 22 wards, each with a bishop. And by 1848, bishops in Canesville, Iowa, exercised civil as well as ecclesiastical authority. And when the saints first settled in Utah, the norm was for each settlement to have a president and at least one bishop just in their group. Salt Lake City was would be divided into 19 wards by 1849, each with a bishop and two counselors. In each stake, bishops would call men and later boys to fill stake-level deacons, quorums, teachers, quorums, and priest quorums, and then give responsibilities to their wards. So it was really a function to organize the temporal needs of the saints. It was really sort of um, a way to function and to survive at the time, if that makes any sense. Uh, Bishops would also spend a lot of time managing the tithing. And again, tithes back then were different. They were mostly in-kind donations for the bishop's storehouse. So these were animals and bins and farm products. Tithing houses sometimes became like these commerce centers serving as trading posts almost. Um, Banks would issue and receive tithing scrip, wayside inns, transportation and mail hubs. The presiding bishopric issued price valuations for donated and traded products, creating sort of this uniform prices for the territory. So it was really like a temporal, temporal thing. It, it, they didn't take over the spiritual needs till much later. Bishops and stake presidents, I believe, I'm trying to think if you were a bishop, I think if you're a stake president, you want missions. Um, it, they just weren't considered like a local pastoral, um, person that you would go to and like confess your sins to. It just, it just wasn't like that. 
So he was more like kind of like a leader or a go-to person. Well, when they use it, when Leonard Arrington uses the word captain, I think that that's a good way to look at it. It was very much organized like a militia. The early Mormons organized like an army, like a militia, because that's what they knew. And so they had these camps as they came across and they would have captains. And so this is where we start to see the bishops evolve into more of a leader of a, of a localized group, if that makes sense. Uh, so strange that the U.S. government would be frightened by that. I wonder why they decided to pick on the Mormons so badly. <laughs> well, it gets better. So, um, you can read in many of the polygamous wife's journals about visiting camps. And this is, if you're a polygamous wife, um, we do know that this time was a lot of visiting camp to camp. You would go, the, the good news is, is if you had a wife in another camp, you would go visit her in the other camp. This is where you would share supplies and share gossip and uh, resources and that kind of thing. This this helped not only establish their physical survival, but kind of really firmed up their social and spiritual connections as well. Despite these for- good fortifications, the heavy winter is what would make this famous. In 1846 to 1847, it would be one of the people's severest trials. Leonard Arrington estimated that around 200 people would die at winter quarters alone, perhaps one in 30. Uh, Colonel Kane would say, quote, This winter was a turning point of the Mormon fortunes. Those who lived through it were spared to witness the gradual return of better times, and now, and they now liken it to the passing of a dreary night, since which they have watched the coming of a steadily bright, brightening day. Mormons knew they couldn't stay on Indian grounds, and while this would be the stopping and transitioning place for many Mormon wagon trains, Following Brigham's first train out, remember we talked about Brigham sent the first train out. After it was used, uh, it was vacated and left empty in a few short months. Uh, so winter quarters was used as a preparatory camp, and that winter allowed them to make prepar- preparations for a group of pioneers to travel west in the spring. Um, and it would be the vanguard of 143 picked men and three women in a 70-horse-drawn wagons. So this was a group that first left in April 1847 to plant the first crops in the Salt Lake Valley. And after that company of nearly 2,000 in 566 wagons left winter quarters in time to arrive in the Valley of September. Because of weather, unpreparedness, and other complications, it would take four months to cross Iowa's 300 miles. And in comparison, it would take other pioneer companies only three months to cover the 1,000 miles to Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Yeah, so the first group had a really, really rocky start. But in 1846, Brigham Young's plans were not smooth. So, you know, Brigham Young did, did, I guess, accomplish a huge, incredible feat, but it was not without many, many mistakes and many casualties. Um, so we all often hear the, hear the term Mormon reparation. And what would become known as the Mormon Reformation of 1856 and 1857 would be the most strident period attempts on the part of the church authorities to motivate members to live the law of polygamy more fully. Now, as it starts to become more popular, they really have to sell this to the larger population. You have to remember that they spent a good period defending themselves against polygamy. A lot of the saints had been persecuted for plural marriage, and they're like, what the heck? We don't do this. These are lies. Our prophets have said these are lies. And now they had to sell this to the general population. So this would be done through exhortation, sermons, rebaptisms, and other forms of ecclesiastical and group pressure. Um, so rebaptisms, 
I don't know if you know this, but Brigham Young actually had a thing where he rebaptized the majority of the saints coming into Utah. Did you know that? I had no idea. Uh, did it have to do with the, the marriage? S- sort of. Uh, I've heard scholars, um, speculate that it has to do with this in-group dynamic. They were leaving, you know, there was a huge schism with the RLDS church and other breakoff groups. This was Brigham's Young, Brigham Young's way of asserting his power. Yeah, I was just going to say it sounds like a power play, you know, that it sounds like he wanted to assert his power, you know, that that the baptisms that were done when someone else was in power aren't as valid as the baptisms that are done when he's in power. And he would do a lot of this. He would rewrite the temple ceremonies and things like that coming coming into the Utah period. But it's, I, I don't think it was just about that. Baptism was understood in a completely different way than we understand it now. First of all, the age eight was not the standard age for baptisms. People were getting baptized at whatever age. And then, of course, there are... There are several instances of rebaptisms in Nauvoo and and earlier. It was just more of a sort of like recommitting yourself to the Lord type thing. So it wasn't as strict as it is now. We do know that scholars' estimates have vary and have generally increased in the recent years, but polygamy still remained a minority practice among Mormons. It was more common among church leaders and the elite in the community and then among the rank-and-file members, as we know. And at this point in Werner Quarters, it's still really only limited to the power and the leadership. Um, partly because of the great pressure of prominent members to conform, and partly because such men had greater economic abilities to support additional wives. Scholars knew, uh, Newell Brinkhurst and Foster claim in their introduction to the persistence of polygamy that Joseph Smith had Quote, limited plural marriage, limited plural marriage to just 29 of his most trusted lieutenants. Brigham Young would go on to allow 160 additional prominent Mormon leaders to take between them some 400 plural wives. This occurring during the critical one and a half year period before the Latter day Saint exodus from Nauvoo in 1844 to 1846. So if Bringhurst and Foster's claim is right, by the time they left, there would be 160 men practicing plural marriage, and there would be 400 women. So you can do the math on that. The world would not know about polygamy until an 1852 announcement, which we're going to talk about later on. But the world was generally appalled by Mormons. Of course, they're being marketed and labeled as these polygamists. This is a huge issue. And um, you have Republican President uh, James Buchanan saying in 1856, that polygamy and slavery were the twin relics of barbarism. In 1857, President James Buchanan sent federal troops to Utah to curb, to curb Mormon resistance to a territorial government. And we're going to talk about all of that, too, because that's a huge part of this history. Although in that case, polygamy was not a direct cause. It contributed to an atmosphere of mutual distrust. Um, so the saints would have this relative tranquility between the 1860s and early 1870s. But it really increased the hostility towards polygamy, mostly due to books like Fanny Stenhouse's book and other other culminating issues and congressional legislation against it. There would become legal prosecution, disenfranchisement of practitioners and believers. They would dismantle the Mormon church's corporate structure and eventually surrender the church via an 1890 
and an, and an eventual church surrender via the 1890 manifesto. So all of that we're going to be covering. It's going to become a big deal. But we're not there yet. We're still in the late 1840s. Polygamy is still secret. We're at winter quarters. The wives now are visiting camp to camp. It's, you know, it's becoming a spiritual practice. Now, are the wives aware that there are other wives of, like, the single guy? Yes. So, unlike Joseph Smith, who really had a hard time selling it to Emma, what we know about most of the other plural wives is that they were aware of it. Oftentimes, it was a family member or sister that were involved. And they knew of other people because they were having these secret meetings of the elite they would have these secret societies. They were they were offered their endowments, whereas other members were not. So it was very much an elite secret practice. So the best way I could explain it right now is: imagine going to your ward. You go, you you know, you're in the primary. You're a primary teacher. You go and you notice on the stand all the men up there on the stand, and they're all very familiar with each other, and all their wives are very, you know, familiar with each other, and you know that the bishopric and all their wives go out to eat every Sunday. They're a very close group. And you you wonder about that. It bothers you a little bit that they're a little bit close. But you wonder about that. It was the same sort of thing. So these leaders did a lot of social activities together. Their wives had more power, more sway, more access to resources. And members noticed that for sure. And, of course, there were rumors of polygamy swirling, but it was not out in the open yet. But as Eliza and Zina said, you could start to see who was a plural wife now. You know, it was starting to become noticed. As the saints began heading west, many of them had to do this in pieces because of money, weather, timing, planning, that kind of thing. But if you were in a polygamous relationship, there was a high likelihood you would not be going across with your husband. Polygamous families were broken up into pieces. And Something else that you might not know about this is divorces were already happening at this point. A conservative estimate stated that Brigham Young had granted 1,645 divorces during the period of his presidency. Some divorces went through local leadership, and some went directly to the president of the church, which would have been Brigham Young at the time. And we're going to also bring on an expert. Craig Foster has done a lot of work on this, and we're going we're gonna to bring on uh, someone to talk strictly about the divorce laws. The most unusual case was George D. Grant, who was divorced from three wives on the same day and a fourth within five weeks. More conclusive evidence is the fact that Brigham Young had no authority to grant civil divorces and, or terminating monogamous marriages, but as the president of the church, he alone had the right to sever polygamous marriages. Polygamous marriages were always extra-legal, and in the Mormon system, only the president had the right to authorize marriages and divorces. John D. Lee. Do you know who he is, Malia? Uh, sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. He is John D. Lee, famous Mormon Meadows massacre fame. He was the fall man that would be pegged for Mormon Meadows. Yeah. Mountain Meadows. Um, he would, uh, he would arrive in winter quarters in late August. And during that time, Lee kept a journal of the activities of the leaders and the decisions that were made. He and his own family were mentioned rarely. In fact, it is not known definitely as what to the makeup of his own family was during that period of time and the following year. In addition to the seven wives named, there were at least two, Delthea Morris, who left him to marry a traitor while he was going on one of his numerous trips, and Sarah Caroline Williams, 
who lived most of the time with her aunt, um, how would you say it, Marcia Allen? Marcia Allen? So, people like John D. Lee, who would have been a prominent Mormon man, he has wives, and already some of them are leaving him. Another thing that's happening is babies are being born. It's it's almost like uh, marriage became less important. The words of it became less important when polygamy started happening. How funny. <laughs> Traditional marriage. So, yeah, it, it is interesting. And you notice a lot of the people didn't talk about the specifics, certainly the specific, specifics of their marriage, but they also didn't talk about their unions in what I would describe as a as a way that monogamous couples would talk about their unions in winter quarters. We have a lot of, um, it's very formal, formal. There's a lot of formalities discussed. John D. Lee's talking about the business things. This was just something that, that you did, but it wasn't a really organized way to practice or live it. It was, it was kind of disrupted at this point. Um, and again, like I said, babies are being born to polygamous husbands at this time and some husbands are leaving to go with the Mormon battalion. And uh Andrea Radke Moss is going to talk about this. She's going to talk about the women that that went with that. We know that the saints had rugged dwellings and lived commun- communally. Eliza R. Snow writes in February 12, 1846, quote, We left our homes and went as far as Brother Hi- Hiram Kimball's, where we spent the night, though, through the generosity of Sister Sarah Kimball and Mother Lydia Granger and made some additional preparations for our journey. On February 13th, she wrote, crossed the Mississippi and joined the camp, found Brother Lorenzo and Brother David Yearsley's family tented side by side. We lodged in Brother Wise's tent before morning was covered with snow. And then on the 19th, she wrote the song, The Camper of Israel. Do you want to say that, Malia? Uh, a song for the pioneers? Although in woods and tents we dwell, shout, shout, O camp of Israel. No Christian mobs on earth can bind our thoughts or steal our peace of mind. Want to bet? Uh, though we fly from vile aggression, we'll maintain our pure profession. Seek a peaceable possession far from gentles and oppression. We better live in tents and smoke than wear the cursed gentle yoke. Gentile. Gentile. Gentile yoke. We better from our country fly than by mobocracy to die. We've left the city of Nauvoo and our beloved temple too, and to the wilderness we'll go and the winter frosts and snow. Our homes were dear, we loved them well. Beneath our roofs we hope to dwell. And honor the great God's commands uh, by mutual rights of Christian lands. Our persecutors will not cease their murderous spelling of our peace. Sorry, Lindsay has spoiling. Sorry, Lindsay has the smallest font in Christendom. Uh, and have decreed that we must go to wilds where reeds and rushes grow. The camp, the camp, its numbers swell. Shout, shout, O camp of Israel. The king, the lord of hosts, is near. His armies guard our front and rear. Thanks. So that gives you some insight of how how they felt. Um, At this point, camps and wagon trains would be broken into groups of about 100 families. This meant a lot of splitting up of newly formed plural families. Often plural wives would spend the time going from camp to camp, visiting other wives, like I said. Those without children or who were older, had time to knit, sew, make dresses. Others were midwives and doctors and were kept busy serving one another. Uh, Often uh, midwives would birth the babies of their sister wives with their husbands. So this was would be a bonding thing for them in many cases. 
many women would not be with their husbands during this time or with their sister wives. I would argue that this trek prepared many women to live the plurality of wives later on. It kind of prepared them to be alone, to do this alone, and to survive loneliness. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a big part of polygamy was loneliness. And you'll you'll hear how these women who are married to to a man who has other wives will say, you know, I, I felt so lonely on the plains or whatever. It was a hard time for them. Camps and wagon trains. I already said that. The 1,500-mile trip to Salt Lake City was actually completed in a number of stages. Um... Some of it was spent in farming, attempting to find food and shelter, and acquiring supplies for the trip. A lot of it was doing that, then more time on the trail. And as Eliza Partridge Lyman noted in her journal on the first day of Nauvoo, she wrote, quote, We were very poorly fitted out for such a journey of that time of year. The majority of the info regarding plural marriage on the trail is scant. Wives sometimes travel together, but that was rare. Um, and they hardly ever mention their husbands or the wives, but they do mention the hardships of travel. They would be in their small camps, mostly without their husbands, having babies, bearing babies, and sometimes getting married. As they left Nauvoo and first camped in Sugar Creek, Iowa, each morning as they arose to face a difficult day, they could hear the temple bell from Nauvoo reminding them of what they had given up and of the many problems that they faced in private. That seems like uh, kind of a, a kick to the gut as you're leaving. You know, you're hearing the bell ringing like, you know, here, here's one final smack to the face. See you later. Yeah. And I think they felt that way too. I mean, they did feel persecuted. They had, they had suffered law persecution and now they have to leave and they're broken up. Their families are split up. It, it would just been kind of a harrowing thing to do. Um, Most women, spent their time preparing meals, making camp, and keeping the kids alive. Many women's journals simply say for the day's activity one-word items like washed, ironed, baked, or washing, etc. And so it seemed like a monotonous survival time for them. The men were usually trading supplies at the beginning, and then they were hunting. Women were usually thought lucky if they could travel with a sister wife, but most plural families were split into different wagon companies. On March 4th, 1846, Eliza wrote, quote, I spent some time with Sister W. Whitney and Sarah Ann Whitney Kimball. Last night dreamed of being an Elder C. Kimball's mess, which would mean his camp. Thought myself quite awkwardly situated. Just that night, Sister Whitney came to our tent expressing much joy in her countenance and said we are all to go together in Brother Kimball's company the camp being divided into different companies under the 12 for the convenience of traveling, end quote. In her journal on the trail, she would write about having an interview with her words, finally with her husband, um, a few months later after they left. I'm still not understanding why the women were not going with their husbands. Like, why weren't they going as a group? Okay, well, first you have to remember, that's a great question, but first you have to remember that polygamy was still secret. So you couldn't just organize things like that. And some of these men or these women, they they are not considered married women publicly. So they are attached to their other families. But mostly 
it wasn't out of propriety. It was just about uh, logistics. So the first wagon company, like I said, was mostly men and three women. And those three women weren't even supposed to go. One of the wives had convinced Brigham to let her go um, and bring her sister and uh, bring another wife of another man. And so it was just about logistics, about how they could get across. And these sister wives were supposed to sometimes broken up strategically so they could take care of kids and other sister wives, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess it's, I, it's, I think it's, I'm coming to it from my point of view where I would never even attempt something like that without my husband, like trying to take my kid even like to go out to dinner without my husband, I would never do it, you know? So it's it's a different perspective. Well, and as you're going to see as we talk about the Utah period, a husband really is a luxury, especially a husband's time is a luxury. And it would be a luxury that most women would not have if they lived in plurality of in in plural marriage. Even Eliza R. Snow, who is a woman of power, says, you know, she finally meets Brigham Young, who is now her new husband after marrying Joseph. And she would write that, quote, President Young shook hands with us. So that was her her experience meeting her husband again on the trail. You can see that the trail was a really busy time, especially for leaders with power. You can understand why Brigham Young would maybe only have time to shake wives with many of his plural wives. Remember... Shake hands with plural wives. He wouldn't shake the wives, hopefully. (laughs) He didn't have time to shake the wives. He only had time to shake their hands. Um, Remember that about 1,135 people immigrated from... Nauvoo to the Great Basin at this time. And one of those was Mary Haskins Parker Richards. She would be a newlywed on the trail and spent the majority of her time alone because her husband was on a mission. Although she was not living plurality yet, she, like many plural wives, uh, would hang out with other lonely women in a similar position. She wrote in her journal on January 3rd, 1847, quote, was addressed by Heber C. Kimball on the duties of families. He exhorted husbands to watch over their wives and children and to instruct them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, not with severity, but with meekness and forbearance. Wives to be subject to their husbands and to watch over their children and set before them an example worthy of imitation. He desired the saints to reform from all their wickedness and put away all their contracted feelings, etc., etc., end quote. So the trail was made up a lot of traveling, camping, visiting, mending, daily activities, dances, and sermons. So that's what we're going to end with this one. Um, I know that there wasn't a lot of information, but we do have to get from Nauvoo to to Utah. And I think that there's something to be said about how plural marriages practice on the trail. So thanks, Malia, for being here just to kind of break up my voice. Absolutely. And we'll see you again on another episode of Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.